This programme was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the night sky, and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Jupiter, the king of the planets, continues to rule the evening sky, appearing in the northwest at early twilight. It sets around 11 p.m. at the beginning of the month and by 9 p.m. at the end. The moon will be near Jupiter on the 14th. The full moon may look a little odd on the 25th as it grazes the outer part of Earth's shadow, the penumbra. It will be most in the shadow around 8.13 p.m. New Zealand daylight time. The top edge of the moon will be darkest. Northwest of overhead is Sirius, Takarua, the brightest true star in the sky. Sirius is the brightest star both because it's relatively close at 9 light years away and 23 times brighter than the sun. Southwest of the zenith is Canopus Altahi, the second brightest star. Canopus is also a very luminous distant star 13,000 times brighter than the sun and 300 light years away. Below Sirius are bluish Rigel and orange Betelgeuse, the brightest stars in Orion. Rigel is a bluish supergiant star, 40,000 times brighter than the sun and much hotter. It is 800 light years away. Orange Betelgeuse is a red giant star, cooler than the sun but much bigger and 9,000 times brighter. Betelgeuse is 400 light years from us. Between them is a line of three stars, Orion's Belt. To European Southern Hemisphere star watchers, the line of stars makes the, marks the bottom of the pot, or the iron pot. In Polynesian folklore, it's Tautoru, the carved sternpost of a great waka. Orion's belt points down and left to a V-shaped pattern of stars. This makes the face of Taurus the Bull seen rather sideways from our Southern Hemisphere perspective. The orange star Aldebaran is at one tip of the V, making one eye of the bull. Continuing the line from Orion down and left finds the Pleiades, or Matariki star cluster, low in the northwest. It sets after 10 p.m. mid-month. The cluster is about 440 light-years away. The handle of the pot, or Orion's sword, has the Orion Nebula at its center, a glowing gas cloud many light-years across and 1,300 light-years away. It is a place where dust and gas in space is gathering together to make new stars. Some of the stars are much bigger and hotter than the sun. Ultraviolet light from them causes the leftover gas to glow, making the nebula. Near the north skyline are Pollux and Castor, marking the heads of Gemini, the twins. Though paired in mythology, the two stars are not related at all. Castor is a hot white star like Sirius, but 52 light years away. Golden Pollux is bigger and brighter, but cooler than Sirius, and only 34 light years away. Above and right of them is the star cluster Preasip, marking the shell of Cancer the Crab. Preasip is also called the Beehive Cluster, the reason obvious when it is viewed in binoculars. It is some 500 light years from us. Crux, the Southern Cross, is in the southeast. Below it are Beta and Alpha Centauri, often called the Pointers. 
Alpha Centauri is the closest naked eye star, 4.3 light years away. Actually a system of two stars, perhaps even three. Beta Centauri, like most of the stars in Crux, is a blue giant star hundreds of light years away. The Milky Way is brightest in the southeast toward Crux. It becomes broader lower in the southeast toward Scorpius. Above Crux, the Milky Way can be traced nearly overhead where it fades. It becomes very faint in the north, right of Orion, where we are looking towards the galaxy's nearby edge. The center of of the galaxy is in the broad part of the Milky Way below Scorpius in the southeast. The clouds in Magellan, the LMC and SMC, are high in the southern sky. They are easily seen by uh, by eye on a dark moonless night, looking like misty patches. They are two small galaxies about 160,000 and 200,000 light years away. The large cloud is around a quarter of the mass of the Milky Way. (coughs) Pardon me. Bright planets are in the dawn sky. Venus is the brilliant morning star, rising soon after 5 p.m. at the beginning of the month and around 6.30 at the end. At the beginning of the month, Mars is just above Venus, looking like a medium bright reddish star. It moves up and away from Venus. Later in the month, Saturn appears and moves up to the sky morning to morning. It is the same brightness as Mars. On the 22nd, Saturn will be just to the right of Venus with less than half a full moon's width between them. Mars and Saturn move up the sky while Venus stays put. By the end of the month, Mars, Saturn, and Venus are roughly equally spaced on a line. The moon will be near Venus on the 9th. Now, speaking of stuff near the moon, or near Venus, rather, Brian Skiff from the Lowell Observatory, who has been a research scientist for almost 50 years, is no stranger to the discovery of new small bodies in the solar system. So when he found another fast-moving asteroid while analyzing recent images in the Lowell Observatory near-Earth object search, it seemed fairly routine. This thing was going about four degrees a day, so it was obviously a nearby object, given that main belt asteroids go about a quarter of a degree a day, Skiff says. As with any fast mover, he interrupted the regular observing plan to go back for follow-up observations that night, so that the object would not get lost. As usual, he reported the data to the Minor Planet Center, and then he forgot all about it. Obviously, it was just a near-Earth object, and a nice bright one and a nice thing for us, so we moved on and didn't think anything of it, he says. He didn't even realize when, a year later, two other astronomers, Seppo Makola from the Tuerlo Observatory and Paul Weigert from the University of Western Ontario, analyzed the object's orbit and found it was the first of its kind. The object, which had received the temporary designation 2002-VE-68, is a quasi-moon. It appears to orbit Venus, but is in fact not gravitationally bound to it, but rather circles both the planet and the sun in a complex and ultimately unstable orbit. Calculations show it will leave Venus's influence altogether within about 500 years. Such quasi-moon orbits had been predicted as a theoretical possibility way back in 1913, but none had ever actually been seen before. This find, therefore, represented a whole new class of minor bodies in the solar system. Since then, at least eight others have been found, one of them associated with Neptune, and seven of them orbiting alongside Earth. Earth's tally includes one mini-moon, found just last year, that appears to have the most stable quasi-satellite orbit yet, with a lifetime of around 4,000 years before it departs Earth's gravitational influence. Skiff wasn't aware of any of this follow-up work until he got a call last year from Latif Nasser, co-host of the popular science podcast Radio Lab. 
Nasser was trying to track down the origin of an odd name he had seen on an artistic poster of the solar system that was hanging on the wall of his two-year-old son's bedroom. The poster seemed to show that Venus had a moon, whose name was labeled as Zuzve. Nasser, Nasser made some calls to astronomers at NASA, who confirmed his suspicion that no, Venus does not have a moon. Perplexed, he kept digging to try to figure out where the odd object with the odd name had come from. He eventually tracked down the poster's creator, artist Alex Foster, who was also taken by surprise by the question. They eventually figured out what had happened. Foster had found the name of the asteroid 2002 VE on a list of solar system moons somewhere online. He doesn't remember where. When transferring it to his poster, he misread his own handwriting and instead entered it on the poster as Z00ZVE. Mystery solved. Zuzve. It's a bit surreal and strange to think how it all turned out, Foster says, all starting with making an error years ago when I made the print. He adds, it's affected me so far mostly through a huge amount of orders through my online shop, which I'm very grateful for. But Nasser couldn't just leave it there. By then, I don't know, I'd sort of fallen for this thing, he tells Sky and Telescope. I think if it had been labeled on the poster as 2002 VE, for whatever weird mystical reason, I don't think I would have fallen in love with it quite as hard as I did. But somehow the funny-sounding name Zuzve had really stuck, struck a chord with him. So I was like, okay, can we actually change it? Nasser set about learning the somewhat arcane process for the formal naming of Asteroid, and asked for Skiff's help. Skiff was initially unimpressed. As the original discoverer, he was authorized to propose an official name for the object, as he had done for many of his previous asteroid discoveries. Once, after naming four consecutively numbered asteroids in a row, he suggested naming them after the four beetles. Name proposals are then submitted to the International Astronomical Union, the IAO, for approval. IAU for approval. But Zuzve didn't grab him. I was like, so would you name it Zuzve? Nasser recalls. And he's like, no, definitely not. Initially crestfallen, Nasser, who is known for his persistence, told Skiff the whole story about the poster and the mistaken reading of the sloppy notes that resulted in the odd name, and about the odd and unusual nature of the object's orbit, and he won him over. Nasser ended up writing up the formal proposal, which is limited to 360 characters, and Skiff and the observatory agreed to formally submit it to Gareth Williams at the Centre for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian, who acts as the secretary for the International Astronomical Union's Working Group on Solar System Small Body Nomenclature. After the final votes came in, the name was narrowly accepted. On February 5th, the IAU included it on its latest list of new asteroid names. Nasser says that part of what excited him about this whole process was the fact that such fascinating new findings as the, as the existence of quasi-moons is still possible. I just had the idea that science is a textbook. It's written. It's published, he says. I like the feeling that Earth has a quasi-moon that was just discovered last year. There's still some pretty basic stuff that we just don't know about what's going on, even right around us, that we're still figuring out. Skiff echoes that sentiment. This is an example of how we live in this tremendously dynamic environment in the solar system. Even though it's four and a half billion years old, it's still tremendously dynamic, and we're finding out about it as we go along. You're listening to Radio Hawks Bay, your community access radio station, broadcasting on 104.7 FM and 1431 AM. This program is Starry Nights. 
NASA's new Horizon mission, which encountered Pluto in 2015, is now riding through the deepest depths of the Kuiper Belt, encountering a cosmic dust storm that hints there may be more going on in the outermost reaches of the solar system than previously thought. Spaces filled with dust formed of tiny particles, just microns, millionths of a meter in size. Much of the dust in our solar system is leftover residue from the formation of the planets, which was a violent affair that saw a multitude of objects smash into one another. Today, this ancient dust is also joined by fresh dust sputtered off the surfaces of asteroids and comets by micrometeorite impacts. This dust content, both fresh and ancient, gives rise to the enigmatic zodiacal light. The dust extends into the farthest reaches of the solar system. Astronomers still are not entirely sure of the makeup of this final frontier. The Kuiper Belt, or the Kuiper-Edgeworth Belt, named after the astronomers Gerard Kuiper and Kenneth Edgeworth, who independently proposed its existence, is so far away, and its icy inhabitants are so small and faint, that it wasn't until 1992 that the first Kuiper Belt object, KBO, beyond Pluto, was discovered. That discovery was made by University of Hawaii astronomers Dave Jewett and Jane Liu. But since then, thousands of KBOs have been spotted, and astronomers have tentatively been able to begin mapping the outer solar system. Beyond the Kuiper Belt is the scattered disk, populated by KBOs that have been scattered from the Kuiper Belt by gravitational tides coming in from the solar system's outermost planet, Neptune. Objects in the scattered disk tend to have highly elliptical orbits that are steeply inclined to the plane of the solar system and can go out to hundreds of AUs from the Sun. So one AU, or astronomical unit, is equal to the distance between Earth and the Sun, about 150 million kilometers. Far beyond the Kuiper belt and the scattered disk is the Oort cloud, a fast, spherical region of frozen objects extending over a light year from the Sun. While its distance means that the Oort cloud has never been directly observed, scientists know it exists because the orbits of long-period comets can be traced back to there. Now, however, new findings from the New Horizons from New Horizons threaten to upend much of what astronomers thought they knew about the outer solar system to begin with. New Horizons is making the first direct measurements of interplanetary dust far beyond Neptune and Pluto, so every observation could lead to a discovery. Astronomer Alex Donner of the University of Colorado in Boulder said in a statement, The distance between the outer edge of the Kuiper Belt and the Sun was thought to be about 50 astronomical units. On, Janu- <coughs> me, on January the 1st, 2019, New Horizons encountered the KBO named Arakoth, which sits at a distance of 44.5 AU from the Sun. Today, New Horizons is at a distance of 58.25 AU from the Sun, having passed the 50 AU mark in April of 2021. Over the past five years, New Horizons should have sailed over the edge of the Kuiper Belt. With KBOs separated by millions of kilometers, however, New Horizons wouldn't virtually notice what wouldn't visually notice that had left them behind. Instead, the sign would be a drop-off in levels of interplanetary dust. Yet, the spacecraft's Venetia Burney student dust counter, the STC, named after the little girl who named Pluto in 1930, has not observed this drop-off. In fact, there's as much dust as ever out there, bewildering astronomers. One possibility is that the excess dust was actually produced closer to the sun and was blown out of the Kuiper belt thanks to the pressure of sunlight acting on the particles. However, Donner's team has deemed this theory unlikely. Instead, a more enticing possibility is favoured, they say. There may simply be more to the Kuiper Belt than astronomers had realised. 
The continued presence of dust implies New Horizons is still within the Kuiper Belt, and that the Kuiper Belt is far more extensive than anyone knew, stretching across billions of kilometers farther from the sun than our maps presently estimate. It's not just the dust counts telling us this. Astronomers have been using machine learning algorithms to search observations made by the 8.2-meter Subaru telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii and the Victor M. Blanco 4-meter telescope at the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory in Chile to hunt for more icy objects out there that New Horizons could investigate. They've so far found 154 objects in the direction that New Horizons is headed, including about 20 that the spacecraft will come within a few million kilometers of, close enough for some rudimentary observations. Yet some of those 154 objects appear to be located beyond the Kuiper Belt, and not on the kind of eccentric orbit suggestive of the scattered disk, but in the ecliptic plane that's also shared by the Kuiper Belt. Are they members of a wider Kuiper Belt, or perhaps even a second belt? The idea that we might have detected an extended Kuiper belt with a whole new population of objects colliding and producing more dust offers another clue in solving the mysteries of the solar system's most distant regions, said Donner. New Horizons is sailing through uncharted waters. Only four spacecraft have passed this way before, Pioneers 10 and 11, and Voyagers 1 and Voyager 2. None were equipped with a dust counter like New Horizons. While the Pioneers are long since inactive and with the Voyager 1 spacecraft beginning to falter, New Horizons has enough fuel and power to survive well into the 2040s, when it could be well beyond 100 AU from the Sun. By the time its power dwindles, it will likely have completely redrawn the map of the outer solar system. Two dwarf planets within our solar system, namely Eris and Makemake, might exhibit enough geothermal activity to maintain oceans of liquid water within, according to modeling that describes new observations made with the James Webb Space Telescope. We see some interesting signs of hot times in cool places, said Christopher Glane, a planetary geochemist from Texas's Southwest Research Institute, in a statement. Found deep in the Kuiper Belt, Eris is the icy world that, when it was discovered in January 2005, threw Pluto's status in the solar system into crisis. Just 44 kilometers smaller than Pluto, but 25% more massive thanks to a greater concentration of rock in its core, Eris became the prototype dwarf planet. Pluto was inevitably forced to follow suit. Makemake was spotted two months after Eris, and at 1,430 kilometers across is about 1,000 kilometers smaller than Eris and Pluto. Their great distance from the Sun, Eris is currently 14.4 billion kilometers away, and Makemake is 7.7 billion kilometers away, means little is known about these faraway dwarf planets. However, recent observations with the James Webb Space Telescope have shed new light on the, on the worlds, finding a surprising origin for the frozen methane ice on their surface. We found evidence pointing to, a thermal, to thermal processes producing methane from within Eris and Makemake, said Glane. Methane is what's known as a hydrocarbon, in that it is formed from a mixture of hydrogen and carbon atoms, specifically one carbon atom and four hydrogen atom, atoms, CH4. Those atoms can come in different flavors or isotopes, containing the same number of protons but different number of neutrons. If the methane on these dwarf planet surfaces had been accreted from the primordial planet-forming disk that existed around the young sun 4.5 billion years ago, they would contain a certain isotopic ratio between two isotopes of hydrogen, regular hydrogen with one proton and zero neutrons, and deuterium with one proton and one neutron. 
The hydrogen isotope ratio measured by the JWST, however, is different to the ratio that would be expected if the methane were primordial, as we see on most comets. The deuterium-hydrogen ratio points to geochemical origins for methane produced in the deep interior, says Glane. Our data suggests elevated temperatures in the rocky cores of these worlds so that methane can be cooked up. Molecular nitrogen could be produced as well, and we see it on Eris. In other words, hydrothermal reactions on metamorphic activity, which refers to heat and pressure acting on rocks, must have produced the methane deep inside Eris and Makimaki. Then, that methane must have made its way to the surface via outgassing, or even volcanism. For methane to form in this manner, a temperature in excess of 150 degrees Celsius is required. These temperatures can only come from radioactive isotopes present within the rocky cores of each dwarf planet, giving off heat as the isotopes decay. Hot cores could also point to potential sources of liquid water beneath their icy surface, said Glane, raising the possibility that Eris and Makimaki could contain possibly habitable oceans. The outgassing of methane onto the surface may have been happening until geologically recently, according to another isotope ratio between carbon-12, which has six protons and six neutrons, and carbon-13, which has six protons and seven neutrons. If Eris and Makimaki hosted, or perhaps could still host, warm or even hot geochemistry in their rocky cores, cryovolcanic processes could then deliver methane to the surfaces of these planets, dwarf planets, perhaps in geologically recent times, said Will Grundy of the Lowell Observatory, who led the initial JWST observations. We found a carbon isotope ratio that suggests relatively recent resurfacing. Intriguingly, the models developed to describe the formation and outgassing of methane on Eris and Makimaki could also apply to Saturn's moon Titan. Research published earlier this month indicated that methane and other carbon-based molecules important for life might not be able to reach Titan's subsurface ocean after hanging out on the surface for a bit where hydrocarbons are plentiful. This called into question the presumed possible habitability of Titan's ocean. However, if methane and other gases can form geothermally within the rocky core of Titan as they do on Eris and Makimaki, then Titan's ocean could get its supply of carbon chemistry from within the planet rather than from its surface, and all bets are off on what's going on there. Right, we're just going to take a quick break now and just mention our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium. The Planetarium is located on Chambers Street in Napier on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. It is open to the public every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. No bookings are required. The main program begins at 7.15, runs till roughly 8.30. As I mentioned, no bookings are required. The planetarium is suitable for all ages. So if you're interested in learning more about astronomy, why not come down and pay us a visit any Sunday evening, 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. For further information, you can visit the website, holtplanetarium.org.nz, or give us a call, 8344-345. It's an exciting time in astronomy these days, where records are being broken and reset regularly. The new year is barely two months old, and already new records have been sent for the farthest black hole yet observed, the brightest supernova, and the highest energy gamma rays from our sun. 
Most recently, an international team of astronomers using the ESO's Very Large Telescope in Chile reportedly saw the brightest object ever observed in the universe, a quasar, J0529-4351, I'm just going to call it J, located about 12 billion light-years away that has the fastest-growing supermassive black hole, SMBH, at its centre. The international team responsible for the discovery consisted of astrophysicists from the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, RSAA, and the Centre for Gravitational Astrophysics, the CGA, the Australian National University, the ANU. Joining them were researchers from the University of Melbourne, the Paris Institute of Astrophysics, the IAP, and the European Southern Observatory, the ESO. First discovered in 1963 by Dutch-American astronomer Martin Schmidt, quasars, short for quasi-stellar objects, are the bright cores of galaxies powered by SMBHs. These black holes collect matter from their surroundings and accelerate it to near the speed of light, which releases tremendous amounts of energy across the electromagnetic spectrum. Quasars become so bright that their cores will outshine all the stars in their disk, making them the brightest objects in the sky and visible from billions of light years away. As a general rule, astronomers gauge the growth rate of SMBHs based on the luminosity of their galaxy's core region. The brighter the quasar, the faster the black hole is accreting matter. In this case, the SMBH at the core of J is growing it by the equivalent of one solar mass a day, making it the fastest growing black hole yet observed. In the process, the accretion disk alone releases a radiative energy of two to the power two times ten to the power of forty one watts, more than five hundred trillion times the luminous energy emitted by the sun. Christian Wolf, an ANU astronomer and lead author of the study, characterized the discovery in a recent ESO press release. We have discovered the fastest-growing black hole known to date. It has a mass of 17 billion suns and eats just over a sun per day. This makes it the most luminous object in the known universe. Personally, I simply like the chase. For a few minutes a day, I get to feel like a child again, playing treasure hunt, and now I bring everything to the table that I have learned ever since. Astronomers look forward to making future observations with the next generation telescopes, like the ESO's extremely large telescope, the ELT. This 39 meter telescope, currently under construction in the Atacama Desert in Chile, will make identifying and characterizing distant quasars easier. Studying these objects and their central black holes could reveal vital details about how SMVHs and galaxies co evolved during the early universe. Right, that's going to do it for our program this month. Thanks again to the Holt Planetarium for their sponsorship, and thank you once again for listening to Starry Nights. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, your community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.